You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 15th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. On the one hand, they want the United States to remain very, very involved in NATO and, if one is honest, to be the main payer in NATO. But at the same time, particularly with Trump in the White House, they don't want America to dominate where NATO is going. As NATO's military chiefs gather in Brussels, my guests Mary Dijewski and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing what's on the agenda and the day's other news, including how retired popes should spend their time and... Spencer's scandal potentially plaguing former Speaker of the House John Burko. Plus, so long Frank Lloyd Wright by Simon and Garfunkel still takes the award for the best use of an architect in a song. Andrew Tuck asks how to honour an architect. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Mary Dijewski, writer for The Independent and The Guardian, and Jonathan Fenby, chairman of China Research and director of European political research at T.S. Lombard and author most recently of Crucible on the making of our world after World War II. And let's look first at NATO, the actual military chiefs of which are due shortly to convene in Brussels. The United States' brassest hat, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark A. Milley, has bunged one interesting item onto the agenda in advance prefiguring a potential drawdown of American forces in West Africa. This is extremely likely to prompt an unenthused response from France, which is extensively deployed in a theatre which it believes, not without reason, is a key front line in an ongoing global campaign against Islamist extremism. Um, Mary, what is going on here? Why is the United States apparently losing interest in West Africa? Well, I think there are two reasons. Um, One of them is because... uh, Um, President Trump, but especially, I think, um, the top brass in American intelligence, they are very fixed on what they see as the future threat coming from China and that they are increasingly concentrating their resources looking in that direction. The other thing is that Trump came to office, um, and this is often forgotten, um, saying that he wanted to stop American engagement in foreign wars. And this, I think, was one of the one of the reasons why he was elected. It was a very popular policy um, for a lot of Americans, and it remains so. But right through his time as president, Trump has faced quite a lot of opposition from the top brass about cutting back on Americans abroad. There have been various attempts. He tried to pull Americans out of Afghanistan. The top brass objected. He tried to pull Americans out of Syria. Immediate outcry from all the allies and saying he was betraying the Kurds. He tried to pull out of Iraq. Similar things. Um, West Africa could therefore be seen as a sort of um, a slightly soft touch because the only people who's going to offend particularly by that are going to be the French, as we've seen. Well, on the subject of the French being offended, uh, Jonathan, they're going to be, aren't they? And not without reason. Uh, France already has four and a half thousand troops deployed in West Africa. There's 220 more due to go shortly. Uh, and it, it's not like they've been doing nothing. They, they have found somebody to fight once they got there. Oh, 
Oh, yes, yes, they've been very active there and, and suffered you know, quite a few casualties uh, as part of that. But also this fits for the France into a broader attempt by President Emmanuel Macron to reset France's relationship with its former colonies uh, in Africa. And that's mm. going ahead on the economic front uh, and on other fronts. Uh, and I think uh, the question here is how much France wants to take responsibility for this region of the world, how much it sees this more as an international uh, global uh, issue, which the US uh, should continue to be involved with. Uh, Mary, you made the accurate point that Trump's big pitch in 2016 was that he would bring troops home, that America would not engage itself in pointless, ridiculous, interminable wars overseas, etc. He probably does understand that the best pitch he can make this November uh, is along the same lines. He he walked a very narrow path to victory in 2016, but if he can go back to the American people in 2020 and say the economy's all right and I haven't started any stupid wars, that's probably his best shot. That being the case, um, do we wonder how nervous other NATO military chiefs are going to be at the prospect of Trump actually winning this thing? Is it then possible that the rest of NATO really has to stop thinking about the United States as the cornerstone of the alliance? Well, I think that um, quite a lot of NATO, but especially in the European Union, um, that sense has really been strengthening ever since Trump came to office. Um, There was quite a lot of... um, diffidence, um, shall we say, through the campaign when Trump seemed to cast aspersions on the future of NATO, suggesting that it wasn't necessarily in um, US interests to um, continue to be in NATO. Um, And you saw the ructions from that right across Europe, but especially, interestingly, um, in Britain, of course, um, but also in East and Central Europe, where they see the United States and NATO in particular is the protector, the big protector of their security against Russia. Now, it seems to me that although um, Trump seemed to have been brought round a bit um, about the sort of survivability and relevance of NATO, nonetheless, that trepidation in Europe remains. And we've seen just in the last few days um, with a paper, I think, um, originating in the British military, um, where they say that the new British government, when it does its its promised um, security and defence review, has got to look ahead to a time when the United States may not be um, engaged as it is in Europe and when the UK will have to look to being more autonomous in defence and security terms. And that is a complete rethink um, for the British military. Uh, I think Europe finds itself in... (laughs) classically horns of dilemma, whatever cliche uh, one can use there. On the one hand, they want the United States to remain uh, involved, very, very involved in NATO and, if one is honest, to be the main payer uh, in NATO uh, and supplier of troops uh, and so on. But at the same time, particularly with Trump in the White House, they don't want America to dominate where NATO is going. So you get this whole debate about where is NATO after the end of the Cold War, Macron's remarks about it being brain dead and having to rethink its future and so on. But Europe has, first of all, to decide 
what role it sees for the United States and whether that allies with what Trump thinks. Mary Dijewski and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both for the moment. We'll have more from you both in a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Bill Looty with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The UK, France and Germany have formally accused Iran of violating the terms of a landmark agreement to curb its nuclear programme. The European powers say they are seeking to avoid a crisis over nuclear proliferation. It could lead to the return of sanctions that were lifted following the 2015 accord. Boeing has reported its worst annual orders in more than two decades as the company struggles to defuse a crisis over its 737 MAX. The model has been grounded since two deadly crashes last year. The crisis means the US company has lost its title as the world's biggest plane maker to its rival Airbus. India has partially lifted an internet blackout in the part of Kashmir that it administers. It follows a ruling by the country's highest court that the restrictions were unlawful, but it's understood that mobile data services and social media in the restless region will remain blocked. And the Monocult Minute reports that this year's Wacker Prize has been awarded to the Swiss city of Baden for revitalising its main hub. The Swiss Heritage Society's top gong is given to cities that have successfully raised the quality of urban life. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Bill. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Mary Dijewski and Jonathan Femby. And let us now move on to the rare problem of what a retired Pope should do with himself. Popes usually leave the office only when recalled to barracks by their omnipotent overlord. Benedict XVI bucked this tradition in 2013 when he handed in the big hat voluntarily. Since then, Benedict has mostly maintained an appropriate silence, but broke it a few weeks back to speak up in defence of priestly celibacy apparently concerned by reports that his successor, Pope Francis, favours the church taking a more relaxed attitude. It now appears that Benedict is walking it back. His name will be removed from future editions of the book in which he made his feelings known. Um, Mary, is there a good reason why anybody should still care what Benedict XVI thinks about anything? Well, I think because he still has the rank, um, this extraordinary sort of rank of Pope Emeritus. Yeah, Pope Emeritus. <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. I'm a Pope Emeritus. <laughs> do, do, do you think he keeps that on his, on his credit card? <laughs> yes. Well, the I idea... mean, if, if, if that doesn't get you a hotel upgrade, what does? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, but by keeping the title, um, even Emeritus, um, that puts him effectively on a par with the current Pope. Um, And I think that was always going to create difficulties. Um, And it's probably remarkable, really, that we haven't seen similar difficulties until now. Um, But I think that also, when you you look at the two characters, when you look at Pope Benedict as being um, what appeared a very um, reticent, very um, theologically based, Um, very traditional-minded German Pope. And you look at Pope Francis, who's a Latin American, um, and this, in fact, is where this whole trouble has arisen because he's talking about parts of the Amazon where it's very, very difficult to get priests. This argument has been going on for quite a long time as to whether if they lifted the celibacy requirement, then maybe it would be easier to find priests for those very remote areas. Um, But it does seem to me that in terms of character, as well as in terms of everything else, you're looking at two very, very different people. 
and also a church which has still a very strong conservative, whatever the present pope says and tries to do, has a very, very con conservative lobby, uh, maybe majority, uh, I don't know, in the church, and which, you know, finds it useful to appeal to the power of the Pope Emeritus. Um, Jonathan, I, I will confess to our listeners that I am not myself an especially accomplished uh, Catholic theologian, but... Um, <laughs> You think I am? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm hoping you know more about this than I do. Uh, just Benedict XVI's quoted views uh, on the issue in question itself. He says, It doesn't seem possible to realise both vocations, by which he meant the priesthood and marriage, yeah. simultaneously. Yes. Now, other married people, in my experience, have jobs. Why, why is this one any different? <laughs> because uh, when you become a priest, as I understand it, celibacy is part of your... Uh, decision to remove yourself from the material, everyday human world and become somebody somewhat different. Um, Mary, I would like to expand this conundrum to the more general principle here, which is which is what happens when people leave high office. Yes. Um, once you're, <laughs> should that be the end of it? Once you are off the stage, as it were, should you therefore just shut up? Well, I think um, one of the reasons, maybe the reason um, currently for the continued existence of the House of Lords in the UK um, is exactly um, <laughs> to give a sort of position and a role um, for people who have, I think current terminology is stepped back um, from public life. Um, but they can also make trouble even when they're in the Lords, even in what is regarded as a subordinate position vis-a-vis -vis the Commons. I mean, we saw um, that Margaret Thatcher gave her successor, John Major, a very hard time when he was in office. Um, and it's been, I think, it's quite difficult for people who've been to that extent engaged on the front line um, actually to say nothing when they see, or it seems to them, um, that their successor is um, behaving in such a foolish way. Uh, or when you simply become used <coughs> to that and when you're still relatively young. I mean, that's <coughs> I think what one has a number of quite young presidents, prime ministers and so on retiring. Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, others um, who I think will find it very difficult just to say I'm going off to you know take long walks in the countryside and say nothing. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to that to an extent because it must be the heck of an adjustment from having the sort of the world hang on your every word to yeah. suddenly, you know, once you've sort of signed a piece of paper and handed it off, nobody caring anymore. But is there, Jonathan, a way that you can do... I guess, constructive backseat driving. I mean, I've just come back from Australia where our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, has been weathering the bushfire crisis to a chorus of criticism, some of it from one of his predecessors, mm. Kevin Rudd, uh, who broke with the yeah. protocol of deferential respect uh, and sank the boot in with what looked unmistakably like relish. But <laughs> is there a way that you can actually be helpful uh, as a former office holder? Yes. Uh, I mean, you can bring the wealth experience that you've had and good judgment, etc., etc., uh, to, to bear if your su successors want it. Of course, they may not want it because <laughs> they may not want somebody who was there and was perhaps more successful than them uh, sitting on their shoulder uh, the whole time. So it's a very, very difficult uh, situation, I think. You know, a lot of people, ex-leaders find their way into leading a foundation for good works and so on, but almost inevitably they get caught up in, in what they used to do. I mean, I think one of the um, one of the strongest conventions about not interfering and not um, 
even commenting um, on your successor was in the United States, where past presidents yeah. were not supp supposed, supposed to say yeah. a word about their successor. But that's been broken by Barack Obama, who has been quite voluble yeah. um, on the subject of what he sees as the uh, errors of Donald Trump's ways. And on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of us who would say, well, you know, good on him, quite right for doing that. On the other hand, I think there's a very, a very sensible place for this convention that says, actually, yeah. you should find something else to do. Well, just imagine Donald Trump defeated in November. I don't think he'll go silent. I wouldn't have thought so, no. Um, finally, on today's news panel, though sticking with the subject of ex-office holders, to former House of Commons speaker and future reality show fixture John Burko, an enterprising hack from the Daily Mail find, filed rather a Freedom of Information request for Burko's expenses and was richly rewarded. Indeed, nearly as much as Burko had been himself, it turned out. Among the line items for which Burko billed the taxpayer were a thousand quid for a taxi from London to Nottingham and 12 grand for leaving parties for his staff prior to his departure from the job. It is, of course, right and proper for journalists to take the moral high ground on this issue as we are, as a trade, proverbial for our punctilious honesty in this respect. Um, Mary, first of all, to John Burko's actual claims, especially his £1,000 taxi ride from London to Nottingham, I mean, he could literally have bought a car for less than that. Um, it claimed uh, that he was unable to take the train for security reasons, but, but really... Well, I mean, yes, it seems very strange that it was regarded as safer to take a car um, from London to Nottingham um, than it was for him to take the train. But it does seem that he had taken the train once before on a previous visit. And survived. Um, and, and paid £70. £70 for, for the privilege. Or somebody paid. Um, so the idea that he he went a different way seems indeed to have had some, some rationale to it. Um, but it does seem strange. I mean, the other thing that seems strange to me about um, John Burke's expenses, so far as they've been reported, is the the amount of expenses, for instance, for going on lecture tours of the United States and all these sort of things. Um, I mean, if you go on a lecture tour, if somebody invites you to speak, then I don't understand why he or the British taxpayer should be footing the bill, because it should be the people who, you know, if I go to speak yep. at a university, they pay my expenses. Um, and I would have thought that that's, that that's the way around it ought to be. Uh, I, I should confess that I have once in my time put an actual intercity taxi ride on an expenses ah. bill, but it was it was it was it was Belfast to Dublin. It wasn't across Australia. No, it was yeah. Belfast to Dublin in I think about the mid nineties, and it was like fifty quid or something. So my my conscience is relatively easy on that. But Jonathan. This is the point at which we must confront the regrettable fact that it is not entirely unheard of for fellow practitioners of the journalistic trade yeah. to to take, I don't know, exercise a certain creative liberty when, when filing their expenses. Obviously, none of us present yes. ever would have done any <laughs> such thing. But what, what is the most appalling thing you've ever heard of in this respect, or even in its way the most admirable? Well, I... I, I to, to, to follow on from what you said, um, first of all, there was the old tradition at the end of a lunch uh, among journalists, who wants to take the bill? Yes, yes, who's going to use this thing? Uh, there was the famous story of an American photographer who went for a long assignment on an aircraft carrier and on his way back, uh, when he returned, filed an extensive travel uh, expenses for this trip. <laughs> and the accounts department said, but you were on an aircraft carrier. And he said, bloody big ship. <laughs> uh, and there's another, case, another photographer, again American, who hired a train, a 
whole train, not just a seat like John Burko, but a whole train in South America. The expenses, he put them in on expenses. The expenses were sent back to him. He redid his expenses for exactly the same amount and wrote at the top of it, find the train. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mary, has, has anybody ever arched an eyebrow at anything you've ever filed? Uh, only in, in my view, extremely unjustly. Well, um, obviously, it goes absolutely without saying. Absolutely, because I, I actually post-date um, the whole journalistic lunch culture, and I would also regard myself as an absolute horrible Puritan re- as regarding expenses. But I also um, admit that on one occasion I was a party, at least, um, to chartering a private plane. Amazing. Oh, um, well. And this wasn't actually a stupid thing to do, and we... I would say, as you told uh, saved, the accounts department uh, at the time, saved Find our editors um, considerable amounts of money because several of us had to get following Mikhail Gorbachev when he made his first visit to the Vatican. He was then going on to Malta, and we were supposed to go on to Malta. Getting from Rome to Malta in time to cover these two events was actually impossible other than by chartering a private plane. And we actually saved everybody, I think, an awful amount of well, money by having an absolutely terrifying ride in <laughs> mounting to a private jet through a storm, descending practically vertically into Malta, Malta, which you can possibly say was our just desserts. Mary Dijewski and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both. In a moment, we'll be asking the best way to celebrate an architect's work. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, if you were to write the story of architecture, what kind of story would it be? A gothic romance? A brutalist thriller? Well, no. According to Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck, it would most surely be a musical. So long, Frank Lloyd Wright. Simon and Garfunkel are surely, even today, the most famous for doing it creating a song where a celebrated architect gets bigged up in the lyrics. Yes, we know that David Bowie sang about a few architects too. Here he is, and I quote, stomping along on this big Philip Johnson. This delay just wasting my time Looking across at Richard Rogers Scheming dreams to blow their minds. But so long Frank Lloyd Wright by Simon and Garfunkel still takes the award for the best use of an architect in a song, even if it's apparently more about Paul Simon hinting at the impending break with Art Garfunkel, who had trained as an architect, rather than the work of the Prairie School's leading figure. It really wouldn't make much sense otherwise. Here are the lyrics. I remember Frank Lloyd Wright All of the nights we'd harmonize till dawn Until now, this has been the star turn at many an architect's hoedown or sing-along. Oh yes, they love a sing-along, those architects. But now, a new song has arrived to shake things up. The British one-woman pop-hit factory, Dua Lipa, has a new track called Future Nostalgia. And get this for retro but on-the-money lyrics. You want want a timeless timeless song? song. 
I want to change the game, like modern architecture, John Lautner coming your way. Yes, John freaking Lautner. Just in case you're less excited than us, Lautner was a prolific architect who mostly practiced in California and built several celebrated atomic age houses and helped create the futuristic Googie style. His work gains fans every year, and one of them seems to be Dua Lipa. It's a song that is already a shoo-in for every architect's ball in 2020. But we're hoping she'll also do the honours for Mies van der Rohe, find a rhyme for Zaha Hadid, and perhaps give a shout-out to David Chipperfield too. That was Monocle Magazine's editor, Andrew Tuck, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and Bill Lutie and researched by Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20.00, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>